Good morning and uh, welcome. If I haven't met you yet, my name is John, one of the pastors here at uh, JVC, and just good to have you all worshiping with us on this uh, beautiful Sunday morning. I encourage you to open up yeah, your uh, Bibles to our scripture passage for today, and we're continuing on through the book of Luke. We're looking at Luke eleven, fourteen through 28. So Luke eleven, fourteen through 28. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. And when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. And then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they all go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave birth to you and nursed you. And he replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that uh, as we come to this passage that is a bit confusing, very foreign, uh, and even strange to us, that you would still use your Spirit to speak to us and make uh, it plain to us. And Lord, more than that, we pray that your Spirit, through the power of your unchanging Word, would actually make us new creations in Christ and build us up to look more like Jesus through your creative Word. And so we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Earlier uh, this week, I think, near the beginning of the week, I was listening to a podcast on oral health, uh, which is not my typical podcast uh, uh, listening thing, but a podcast I subscribed to was doing a a special on it. And uh, I figured, well, I don't really like getting my teeth drilled, so maybe I'll learn a few uh, tips for better oral hygiene. And one thing I did learn was that uh, if you only brush your teeth once a day, which of course that's not recommended, but you know, for those of you that might only brush once a day, or if you have to miss a, a, one of the brushings during the day, which do you think is better, to brush at night or in the morning? And what, according to this podcast at least, it's better to brush at night for the sake of your oral hygiene. But for the sake of the health of your friendships and everybody else that has to smell your morning breath, you might want to throw in a morning brush as well for them. And one of the other interesting things in there that he covered was that your your teeth are always 
uh, in a kind of state of either decay or strengthening. Right? That, that your mouth is never in a neutral state, but, but your teeth are always in a state of either uh, one state or the other. One was called demineralization, and the other is remineralization, sometimes referred to as either demin or remin. I think I've heard my dentist re refer to that. Now, I'll probably get some details wrong, so our uh, dental student and Brian can you know, correct me later, but demineralization is when that mineral layer on your teeth is decaying away, and remineralization, you can guess, is when it is being built back up. And to put it simply, in your mouth, your teeth are always either in a state of having cavities forming or cavities, or I think more likely pre-cavities, being healed. There's no neutral state. At this moment, this very moment, your teeth are either getting weaker or stronger. Right? And all of us are kind of feeling our mouth, you know, wondering what's going on in my uh, teeth right now? Am I getting cavities even as I speak? Your mouth is continually in this case of flux. It never stays the same, either towards or away from cavities. Now, you know, you got all this bonus dental uh, knowledge this morning, but the point of it is because I think there is something similar in Jesus' message for us today. That what Jesus is getting at in this kind of confusing and hard to understand passage is that your life, your spiritual state, never stays the same, but is always moving towards being more like Christ or being moving away from him. That there's no neutrality when it comes to the kingdom of God. Now, we're in a series through the book of Luke called The King Has Come. And one of the reasons it's called that is, is one of the themes in the book of Luke is that Jesus has come into this world as its king. He's bringing and ushering in his kingdom. And we see that one aspect of in Jesus' kingdom is there is no neutral ground. You are either with Jesus or you aren't. That every person in this world can be categorized into one of those two places, either part of God's kingdom or part of the kingdom of this world or the devil's kingdom, we could even say. And there is a real battle for the hearts of humanity that is going on ever since the beginning of creation. Who will rule over humanity? What kingdom will be in charge? And to make it more personal, we'd say this, who will rule over your own life, your own home, your own heart? And the question I want you to ask, your morning, ask yourself this morning is simply this, who fills your house? Who fills your house? Maybe another way. Has Jesus filled your house? So we're going to look at this just under two points. First, Jesus conquers. And then second, who's filled your home? So first, Jesus conquers. We're, we're following Jesus on this long journey that he's making down towards Jerusalem and his ultimate death that awaits him there. And we see things are heated up with the Jewish religious and civic authorities, and we see that in the opposition that he continues to face as he does something. Because here in our passage, he heals a man who couldn't speak. A man gets his voice back, which anyone should be uh, amazed by and thankful for, for that human. He gets his life back in many ways. And yet we see there's a whole crowd of people there that aren't excited for that man's ability to speak, but they're judging Jesus. He casts out a, a demon, and yet people say, well, the only reason he can cast out a demon is because he's an agent of Beelzebub, which is another term for Satan. Right? They're saying Jesus is actually like a secret agent of Satan. Now, others aren't so bold 
to say that, but they say, well, I just need some more evidence. You know, if Jesus could show me some other sign, then maybe I would believe he's from God. And many people today actually say the very same thing. They say, if I could just see Jesus do a miracle, then I would believe. If I could have just seen some of the things that were in the Gospels, then I would believe. And yet, what do we see here? People see miraculous things, and it doesn't lead them to belief. That when people say that today, I think that's actually just a, a convenient excuse. And if you were to see something miraculous, you still wouldn't believe. Because over and over in the Gospels, we see people witness miraculous things from Jesus, but it doesn't lead them to believe. It leads them to say the very same thing that skeptics today say. I just need a little more proof. And people also will criticize or say, you know, well, back then it was, people were more superstitious. They were more likely to kind of be tricked by miracles. So if you did something miraculous, then, then it would be easy to trick those people into belief. But today we're more modern and we know that's not how it works. But again, what do we see in our passage? The people see there is something miraculous taking place, but they interpret it to be satanic. It doesn't lead them to belief in Jesus, and it leads them to actually the very opposite, to think that Jesus is in league with Satan. So you see, the thing that keeps us from belief in the end is not a lack of evidence. It's not a lack of seeing miraculous things. But ultimately, it's a hostility to having Jesus as king in your life. as a hostility to Jesus filling and ruling over your house instead of you being kind of the king or queen of your own domain. In the end, we don't really want Jesus to fill our hearts, to rule our life. We want to have life on our own terms. We'd rather be our own bosses. And that is what keeps us from belief in Jesus. And Jesus knows this, and, and he is never taken off guard by his detractors, but he shows them the inconsistency of their own view by essentially saying, well, if I'm in league with Satan, why would Satan be driving out his own demons? I think the New Living Translation renders it well, where it says, any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And this is the point he's making. This is what caused the, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. There were high levels of corruption and power struggles amongst the ruling elite. There were numerous Roman generals who, instead of fighting against Rome's enemies, turned their armies towards Rome and marched on the city and tried to overtake it. And when Rome was fighting against itself, that's when it fell. And Jesus' point is, if Satan is fighting against himself and his own kingdom, his kingdom will surely fail. And then he adds another little twist. And he said, if you think driving out demons is Satan's work, well, then what are you saying about your own people that also drive out demons? They're not going to be too happy when they hear that you were accusing them of doing Satan's work. But then Jesus goes on to say, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come on you. And I think this is the key verse in this first section. That Jesus is saying there is a cosmic battle between good and evil that is taking place in our world. And this goes back to what I said earlier about skeptics today. I think this is where you know, many people are recognizing some of the shortfalls of atheism because the answer to everything that we see in the world simply being a product of evolutionary processes 
Isn't that compelling an answer when you face the suffering and injustice that we see throughout our world? And it certainly offers no hope for things to get better and no justice for those who will never find justice on this world. It's incredibly hopeless. And so more and more people, I think, are turning to something bigger, some bigger power. And I think a more rational answer to what we observe in the world is there is actually such a thing as evil. That there are forces in the world that are hell-bent to destroy what is good and what is beautiful in the world. And Jesus affirms that here. He's saying there is a cosmic battle for the hearts and minds of people going on. There is a kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. And it is a fight and humanity is stuck in the middle of it. And Jesus coming was like his kingdom breaking into this world to bring the first rays of light for that new kingdom of God that is made and has come to restore humanity and make those broken things beautiful again. The Jesus coming into this world is hope breaking into the darkness. It's a reminder that it's not going to be a dark night forever, but there is morning coming, and we long for that. And then Jesus gives this example, which like a lot of this passage is kind of confusing. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Now, again, this is kind of confusing because it's not really clear, well, who's who in this little uh, illustration. But when we look at the other Gospels, it becomes more clear that Jesus compares Satan to this strong man, and Jesus is the one who's essentially breaking into Satan's house, beating him up, taking away his power and all of his possessions. And so we can apply it. What is he saying? Satan's house has been this world, right? That he's, he's kept humanity under his tyranny and suffering. He's led a reign of terror in his home, in this world. And Jesus came to break into that house, to overpower the tyrant, plunder his weapons, and set his people free. And when did this happen? Well, many commentators point to Jesus' temptation as when the tides turned against Satan. In Luke 4, that was almost, I think, a year ago, maybe 10 months ago when we looked at it, where Satan comes to Jesus after he's been wandering alone in the wilderness for 40 days. And he, he tries to offer Jesus all the glory without any of the suffering of God's plan. And yet Jesus resists that and says, no, I came to do my Father's will. And in that moment, suddenly, it's like the tide had shifted that Satan realized his old tricks, his old power, wasn't as powerful against Jesus. And suddenly things change. Satan, instead of quenching out that light of hope, is the one who walks away with a black eye. And that is the work of the kingdom of God. That is why Jesus came to rescue us, to rescue broken, helpless people, people in bondage, People dying under the weight of their own sin, dying under the weight of other sin, to rescue humanity from Satan's power and to restore order and beauty. And so, what does this mean for us? It means that we live in a world where there is evil, there are demonic forces, Satan does exist. 
but we don't need to fear him. He's been bound. I think a helpful illustration is he's like a wounded enemy on the battlefield. Now he's wounded, his doom is sure, but he can still inflict damage. And he might be on the last legs of his life, but if he has a rifle or a grenade, he can still hurt people with it. But he cannot win, for his doom is sure. That Satan has, Jesus has conquered the power of Satan and is advancing his kingdom of light and beauty. So we don't need to fear evil. We don't need to fear evil spirits. Jesus is stronger. We don't need to be worried about being overtaken by some sort of evil spirit. Jesus is stronger. And we are called as his church to be representatives in this world and to show the light and hope and love that Jesus brings into a dark and dying world. We're called to be his ambassadors of light. And so do you know that light of Jesus? Do you have that hope that no matter how dark it gets, that morning is coming? That even if everything looks hopeless, you realize that Jesus will upend it all and usher in his kingdom. And that gives us a hope that cannot fade or be broken. So let's not lose hope. Let's not lose the joy, even in the midst of darkness. And this leads us to our second point, who fills your house? So then we get to another confusing, even odd part of our passage in verse 24. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. And then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. And when you first read this, you're like, you know, what do we make of this, this section? What is Jesus saying, right? He's and be careful wandering out into the desert because that's where all the homeless demons are hanging out. Be careful about tidying up your home too much because, you know, and close your curtains at night so de- demons can't peek in. I don't know how much of this is, is literal versus metaphorical. But what we have here in this illustration is we have someone who's been freed from demonic possession. It's a good thing. And then they clean up their life. They get their house in order, either metaphorically or literally. Jesus redeems him from the demonic possession, and then they kind of tidy up the rest of their home. They stop unhealthy habits. They get rid of those addictions they've been fighting. They turn their life around. They make changes to their life. And now their house, their life is all swept clean and in order and ready for guests. And all the while, there's this demon out, kind of wandering out in the the wilderness, looking for a place to rest, but can't find it. And again, I don't know if this is something we take literally or not, but but what happens then is the demon goes back to check on his old host that he had possessed. It's kind of like a toxic ex-boyfriend checking out his ex-girlfriend's Facebook page (laughs) to see, well, how are they doing now that we've broken up, right? And then they see that, oh man, her life is a whole lot better. And what do they feel the need to do? (laughs) Send them a message, right? Work back in to their life again. But this time the demon brings seven of his buddies and they wreak even more havoc than in the beginning on that person's life. And I think what Jesus is getting at, here's the point of it, He's describing someone whose life is transformed, but they never invite Jesus to be king or lord of their life. 
They never invite Jesus into their home. They get all the bad stuff out, but they never fill it with what is truly good. And I think this is probably the toughest part in our passage because it's saying there's a lot of ways that you can bring change into your life. You can get sober. You can end toxic relationships. You can end bad habits or vices or addictions that you've had. You can work to become more generous. You can help others more. You can do all kinds of things to clean up your house, your life, so that your house is in order and swept clean. But in the end, if you don't give yourself over to Jesus' lordship of your life, none of those good changes will lead to anything that is truly lasting. There's no neutrality here. Your teeth are either headed towards cavities or headed away from cavities. It's never staying the same. And it's the same in our spiritual life. There's no such thing as a person who's got a good life and everything is in order, but they haven't given themselves to Jesus. Your house will either be filled by Jesus or by evil. There's nothing in between. Now, many folks will start coming to church. And I see this. I know even this is some of your story because you want to make changes in your life. And that's a good thing. And I, I, I need to get this fixed in my life, or I've got these issues, and I want God to help. But in the end, you don't want to give your entire life over to Jesus. Instead, you're looking for Jesus to be kind of like a house cleaner that you hire for a deep cleaning, and then they leave so that you can be in control again. But that won't make you a Christian, that won't save you in the end. If, if Jesus just comes in and helps get everything in order and you get everything in order in your life and then you have him go and you, you say, okay, now I'm going to be in charge of my own life. If you never bend your knee to Christ, if you never let him fill your house, your heart, in the end, you'll end up worse than when you started. Jesus is describing one of the most common types of, of people that live today, at least in our country, it's someone who says, well, yeah, of course, I don't want my life run by demons. I don't want to be involved with evil. Of course not. And I know I need to make some changes. I want to be a good person. But I don't want to be one of those crazy Christians. I want to be spiritual, but I don't want to be religious. I'm happy to hire Jesus to clean up my house, but I don't want him living in my house and getting, you know, looking in what's in the closet and telling me how to rearrange things. No, I just want him to clean stuff up and then let go me go on with my life. And this would, helps us make sense of what Jesus says at the end of our passage, when this, this woman, who you know, I, I envision her as probably a mom herself, and she blurts out, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. But Jesus replies, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Now, when I first read this, I thought, well, that's kind of a random thing for Jesus to say at the end, although then again, I was confused the first several times I read this passage about what is going on. But I think now you can see how it fits. To hear the word of God and to obey it is to let Jesus fill your heart, your house, to reorient your life around Christ, to live in harmony with him. Again, Jesus is saying something that's really hard for us. There is no neutrality you can think you can have it for a bit. You think, oh, I can dabble in having a little bit of Jesus here, and I like this other, you know, religious practice here, and I like this kind of spirituality. 
But in the end, only Jesus or evil will fill your heart. You're either for him or against him. And the surprising thing is that you can have lived a very moral life. You can have a very clean house. But unless Jesus fills it, you aren't in the kingdom of light. Now, we need to just recognize this is what Jesus is saying, a hard saying. Going back to verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Again, there's no neutrality in the end. It's not like, and this is how I think most people think it is, that there's a group of really bad people who are going to get judged and, you know, they might go to hell. And then there's a group of generally good people who are trying, and probably most of them will go to heaven. And then there's those really serious Christians that God likes, and they'll get the best seats in heaven. But Jesus is saying, no, there's no neutrality here. There's, n- there's no middle ground. There is a cosmic battle for who will control the hearts of men and women. And it's either the kingdom of heaven or it's the kingdom of darkness. You will be in one or the other. And it's not about how good your life looks. This is what so many of us think, right? If anything, this passage right, teaches, I'm being slightly facetious, right? Demons love to stay in clean houses. Right? They love to make their residence in a welcoming home where everything's tidy and looks good. The person's life who's in all moral and looks good on the outside. And yet, what's their sin? They refuse to let Jesus actually be Lord of their life. And they want to be in charge of it instead. And that means to have Jesus be Lord of your life, he changes what you do in your life. He changes your priorities. He changes how you spend your time. He changes how you spend your money. He changes how you think about others, how you forgive others, what you live for, what you dream for, what your plans are. Now, that's a scary thing to do. That's probably one of the scariest things for any of us to do if we actually think through that. Because Jesus might call you to give up or change things in your life that you've really wanted or you've dreamed of. But he does that because he cares for you. And he has a vision for your life that is way better than what you can imagine. But for him to transform you, you've got to let him mold you. You've got to let him even break you sometimes. Because he's doing those things so that he can rearrange your life into something much more beautiful than you realized. If you would just let go and let him do that work in you. To show you the depth of your sin. To show you the way it influences everything. To let him guide your life instead of just hiring him as a consultant to improve your life to make it more like what you want. But here's the thing, that if you would do this, if I would do this, if we would do this, to give yourself fully to Jesus, it would lead to such blessings in your life. You would be so much happier. You would be so much more joyful. It doesn't necessarily make your life easy, sometimes far from it. But it will make your life good and lasting and satisfying. Because in Jesus' story here, notice that all the work that the person can do in his life It only tidies up the house. It doesn't fill the house. Something else is going to fill that house. And he shows in the end it's either the kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness. 
and all you can do is tidy it up, add some accessories, something will fill your heart, but it's not the things you're trying to fill your heart with. To craft a good life, to have the right home, to have the right job or the right experiences or the right family or the right financial assets, whatever it is, there's a sense those things cannot fill your heart, your heart, your house, your heart. And you know this deep down, even if we're afraid to admit it, because we all, myself included, spend so much time trying to pursue things that we think will make us happy, but we know it's not really making us happy. It's not filling my heart. It's not filling my home. It's tidying things up. Yeah, it makes it look good, but it's not significant. It's not lasting. And humanity, since the beginning, when we rejected God in the garden, we've been trying, running around, trying to fill our hearts with all kinds of things, only to realize they only are as empty as when we started that. We've just tidied up a bunch of stuff. We haven't filled it. There's this quote from the theologian Herman Bovink that, I find so powerful, I've read it before, but he says, in this consists the greatness and miserableness of man. He yearns for rest, yet throws himself from one distraction to another. He pants for permanent and eternal bliss, yet seizes on the pleasures of a moment. He seeks for God, yet loses himself in the creature. He forsakes the fountain of living waters, and hews out broken cisterns that can hold no water. He's a hungry man who dreams that he is eaten, and when he awakes, finds that his soul is still empty. Do you wake up realizing your soul is still empty? Are you trying to drink living water from broken pots? What Jesus is calling us to is to come to him, the source of life and living water, to stop chasing all these other things, to stop thinking that you can be satisfied and have a full life if just everything in your house is in perfect order. But you need to give yourself to Him, to let Him fill your heart. Invite Him into your house. Allow Him to make changes. Let your life be reshaped by Him. Desire Him more than anything on this world. Stop chasing all these distractions and diversions And say, I need you, Jesus, and trust that if you found him and if you come to him, your life will be filled beyond what you can imagine. And you'll actually taste what it is like to live. Because he's the source of life. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to give ourselves fully to you. Even as scary as that is. Because, Lord, all of us in our own ways are addicted to junk food. And we've rejected the nourishing, soul-filling food that is Christ Jesus himself. So bring us now to him. To taste of his pleasures, to experience his joys. To show us in the end that all the things that we've been longing for and trying to fill our lives with, can only be found in Christ. And so to lay down our desires and give them to Jesus and allow him to break our life so that he can remake it
into something much more glorious. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.